Hello, and welcome to United for Peace. Episode 2.5, It Falls Apart. We left off with UNEF successfully getting Israel to pull out of Egypt and Gaza, having already induced the Anglo-French withdrawal previously. For the last 10 years, there has been relative peace on the Israeli-Egyptian border. Occasional raids happened across the border with some smuggling and other illicit activities, but nothing major. Certainly, no direct clashes between Israeli and Egyptian forces occurred. Despite serving as an effective police force along the entire frontier, and thus maintaining the peace for 10 years, no easy task. UNEF did not, and indeed could not, solve the underlying problem of Arab-Israeli tensions. Despite everything, Egypt kept the Suez Canal closed to Israeli shipping. Israel continued to boycott the Mixed Armistice Commission. Egypt started to boycott it, and in addition to the occasional cross-border raids, permanent refugee settlement was never settled. In addition to all this, border disputes over the Hula Valley region, on the west side of the Golan Heights, stood between Israel and Syria. In the upcoming Six-Day War, or Third Arab-Israeli War if you prefer, Israel would occupy the Golan Heights, effectively annexing it eventually in 1981. So, if you didn't know before, now you know how that dispute went. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Besides all the issues above, there were external factors to UNEF's collapse. Because of course there are external factors. There are external factors to everything. There is no such thing as self-contained domestic or regional politics. Perhaps the biggest external problem was the Soviet Union's continual arming of Egypt and Syria, even going so far as sending their own personnel to train Egyptian armed forces. All of this arming and training of Arab states by the Soviets, as it attempted to curry favor in the Middle East, along with the USSR's fierce anti-Israel position, plus the Arab states' belligerent non-recognition of Israel, built up the quite reasonable belief in Israel that it was only a matter of time until it was attacked again. Furthermore, support for the mission was already wavering, along with support for peacekeeping generally. If you recall our discussion on the creation and legality of UNEF back in episode 2.2, the USSR's position on UNEF was that it was illegal. It still did not vote against its creation, mostly for the practical reason that you know, it didn't want World War III more than anyone else. But the force left a sour taste in the Soviet's mouth the whole time. Then, after the UN operation in the Congo turned decisively against the USSR's interests, it started attacking UN peacekeeping as a whole, especially when established by the General Assembly, much more vigorously. So, one of the world's two superpowers, a P5 member, now strenuously objected to the peacekeeping efforts in Egypt. And here, the USSR's interests started to overlap with France, who grew increasingly suspicious about the UN and its anti-colonial agenda following its intervention in Egypt and the Congo. And the UK remained salty over losing so much profit from the Suez Canal, 
So that's three out of five P5 members opposing the mission on political grounds. Not great. Finally, add the heavy financial burdens of the operation in the Congo and the ongoing expenses of UNEF to the boiling resentment of both the USSR and France, and you get a severe political constitutional crisis for the UN in 1964 through 1965. France and the USSR simply stopped paying their financial obligations to the United Nations, using the argument that funds were being used to finance illegal activities, like for example an armed mission created and run by the General Assembly. The International Court of Justice ruled that peacekeeping expenses, even if authorized by the General Assembly rather than the Security Council, were properly to be regarded as quote, expenses of the organization, unquote, under Article 17 of the UN Charter, making such expenses the discretion of the UN as a whole. Individual member states could not dispute them. So, if the United Nations asked for funds for that creation of the General Assembly, it was still the USSR's and France's legal obligation to pay up. I mentioned in the series on ONUC that the USA threatened to pursue expulsion of the Soviet Union from the UN. Obviously, it didn't go as far as to try expelling France from the UN, you just don't do things like that to your allies. But besides that, both the Soviet Union's and France's refusal to pay their legal dues to the UN threatened their voting rights under Article 19 of the UN Charter. This article states that any member state owing two full years of arrears or more shall have no vote in the General Assembly. All of this nearly caused the collapse of the United Nations. The 19th General Assembly of the UN conducted its business in such a way as to avoid the voting rights issue and compromises were agreed upon regarding financing peacekeeping. The 19th General Assembly was so unusual that if you Google search 19th UN General Assembly, the first result is from a UN library FAQ page titled, quote, What happened during the 19th session of the General Assembly, end quote. Anyway, while the USSR and France did not suffer any official penalties due to non-payment of UN dues, the severe stress on the UN system made member states eager to see the UN operation in the Congo end, as we saw in the series on ONUC. And it also resulted in decreased financial and political support for UNEF. So the United Nations in the mid-60s is institutionally less capable of sustaining peacekeeping operations, crucial members are opposed to them, and the subjects of the UNEF Israel and Egypt, are still hostile towards each other and escalating tensions. Amidst all these problems, Egypt dropped a bombshell on the operation. On May 16, 1967, Egyptian troops took up several positions across the Sinai Peninsula, isolating several UNEF units. Along with this, General Fawzi, chief of staff of all Egyptian forces, requested UNEF, at this time commanded by our old friend General Rikye, to withdraw all personnel from their observation posts on the Egypt-Israel border, as well as from Sharm el-Sheikh. Rikye refused this request and referred it to the Secretary General, Utant by this point, since Hammarskjöld was killed in the Congo 
1961. We covered that in episode 1.3. Utant then sought a clarifying position from Egypt's representative to the UN and the Egyptian government itself. But Egyptian troop movements in Sinai continued to isolate and even displace UNEF units. And on May 17th, Egypt went as far as to issue ultimatums for the withdrawal of Yugoslav contingents from Sinai within 24 hours and from Sharm el-Sheikh within 48 hours. We know from last episode that Yugoslavia provided a reconnaissance battalion to UNEF, so this targeted ultimatum clearly intended to hinder UNEF's ability to observe and track troop movements and formations. This is not a good sign for things to come. This same day, the 17th, Utant sought advice from a meeting of representatives of troop-contributing countries while awaiting a formal statement from the Egyptian government. During our discussion of UNEF's legality in episode 2.2, we covered the conflicting opinions concerning whether or not UNEF could continue operating without Egyptian consent, and how Hammershield asserted in a private memo that UNEF absolutely could. Utant, however, told the assembled representatives that, in his opinion, he would have no choice but to accept a formal request from Egypt for the operation to withdraw, since they were present only with the consent from Egypt. Two members present disagreed, but two others agreed with him. Once again, we have a situation in which the legal conclusion does not necessarily reflect the rational conclusion, even if Egypt cannot unilaterally terminate permission for UNEF to remain and operate. With disagreements between those countries contributing forces on that matter, it would not remain a particularly effective force. This is especially true since it would need to be as strong as an effective invasion force to continue operating in Egypt without Egypt's permission. Besides, the recent political and financial crises befalling the UN made it almost irrelevant whether or not it was allowed to operate without Egyptian permission. If Egypt withdrew permission, there would be no possible way the General Assembly could gather the political and financial support necessary to keep it going. The Secretary General's own bleak outlook did not help either. Nonetheless, it still came as a shock to the world when Secretary General Utant formally issued instructions for the UNEF to withdraw from Egypt on May 18, 1967, hours after receiving a message from Egypt's Minister of Foreign Affairs requesting that the UNEF be withdrawn as soon as possible. Mr. Taunt received the message at 12 o'clock noon, New York time, shortly after General Rike had reported additional Egyptian troop movements in the Sinai. This message was delivered by Egypt's permanent representative to the UN, who noted Cairo's concern about what seemed to be efforts to turn UNEF into an occupation force. He also urged Utant not to ask President Nasser to withdraw this request, saying it would be, quote, sternly rebuffed, end quote. So, countries contributing UNEF's troops were no longer on the same page about how to proceed if Egypt withdrew consent for its operation, and Egypt had just done so, 
with the Secretary General effectively told it would be treated as an occupation force if it did not withdraw. At 5 p.m., Utant convened the Military Advisory Committee established by the resolution of November 7, 1956, General Assembly Resolution 1001, and three troop contributing countries not on the committee. Opinions were split again, and two countries explicitly said they would withdraw their forces as soon as Egypt withdrew consent for their presence. Utan's report on the meeting and other records do not indicate which countries took this position, although India and Yugoslavia are suspected, and one of these countries said they had even expressed this position to Egypt already. Mr. Tant said he would reply to Egypt and then report his action to the General Assembly and Security Council. Two hours later, he told Egypt's representative to the United Nations that the UNEF would be withdrawn and issued instructions to UNEF to do so. Israel's permanent representative protested the next day, but nonetheless, all UNEF activity ceased. And so, as of May 19, 1967, the United Nations Emergency Force was over. It was done. All they had to do now was to evacuate. Now, a brief note before I go on. Although Israel's permanent representative protested the withdrawal of UNEF, Israel refused the General Secretary's request to restation the force on their side of the border. After all, it was Egypt withdrawing consent. If Israel wanted the force to stay, they could simply host them on their side of the border. But no such luck. Nonetheless, Mr. Taunt departed New York for Cairo on May 22nd to try and make sure no belligerency was on the agenda, and he arrived on the 23rd. It was on the 23rd, while still en route, that he learned President Nasser announced his intention to reimpose the blockade on Israel in the Strait of Tehran. Again, Egypt was already blocking all Israeli shipping through the Suez, so this would be an enormous blow to Israel. Despite all of the pressures complicating UNEF's mission, all the facts we just went over, and various disclosures Mr. Taunt made regarding the status of UNEF and the difficulties facing it, he had many, many critics following his decision to withdraw the force. The Secretary General's critics then, and sometimes now insofar as anyone still talks about this chapter of history, tend to stick to the following points. First, there was no legal basis for Egypt to unilaterally terminate consent for UNEF to operate. The good faith agreement between the Secretary General Hammarskjöld and Egypt was for UNEF to remain until its task was accomplished. Those were the words used. And on this basis, Hammarskjöld certainly believed Egypt could not terminate the mission unilaterally. Although, as I've hopefully made crystal clear at this point, it would pretty much be impossible for UNEF to operate without Egypt's consent anyway. Just mark this as another instance of legal constructionism clashing with harsh realities. But besides that, Mr. Taunt had an obligation to consult not just the advisory committee, but also the General Assembly at large 
or the Security Council before making a decision regarding whether or not to withdraw UNEF. The General Assembly, after all, created the force in the first place. It was a subsidiary organ of the force. And the Security Council was the legal source of the 1949 Armistice Agreement, in addition to being the UN organ primarily responsible for maintaining peace and security. So, Utant should have consulted one or the other, or both of these organs, and he not only neglected to do so, but he didn't even tell Egypt that he should before making a decision regarding the force. This makes his decision to order UNEF's withdrawal premature and potentially hasten the outbreak of the Six-Day War, critics argue. Additionally, they say, he should have set out for Cairo as soon as he received the request to withdraw the force, in order to really drive home the dangers of withdrawal. Although, based on what Egypt's foreign affairs minister said, this likely would not have worked, and may have even inflamed Nasser's position even more. Finally, some point to discrepancies between his monthly reports on the situation and his annual report published in September 1967. This is kind of weird, though, because the main discrepancy in question was Mr. Taunt downsizing the role of Egypt's troop movements in May in his annual report compared to in his monthly reports. But the troop movements happened one way or another, so they factored into his political calculus all the same. To editorialize a bit, this is an extremely weak criticism overall. Now, seeing as the argument that Mr. Taunt should have consulted the General Assembly or Security Council is the only one I didn't contradict on the spot, you may get the impression that this is the strongest argument, if you haven't already supplied your own contradiction. But the Secretary General was not going to get any better advice from the General Assembly at large than from his advisory committee, plus other troop-contributing countries. And since UNEF was a subsidiary organ of the GA rather than the Security Council, there was absolutely nothing compelling him to consult them. Sure, maybe telling Egypt he had to consult one or the other may have delayed the Six-Day War, but a mere delay is probably the best-case scenario here, and it may not have delayed it anyway since the war broke out before UNEF finished withdrawing from Egypt in any case. The best argument is really that Egypt had no legal right to unilaterally terminate UNEF's consent to operate. It's certainly the one critics clung to hardest. As we know already, Hammershield had drafted a private aid memoir laying out his belief that UNEF's operation could only be terminated with a mutual agreement between Egypt and the United Nations. This was not originally public information, but someone dug it up and revealed it for all to see. Ernest A. Gross, a former deputy representative to the UN from the United States, had already come in contact with the memorandum before, and in fact had referred to it indirectly in a publication as early as 1962. Mr. Gross transmitted a copy to the editor of International Legal Materials, published by the American Society of International Law 
in June 1967. A photocopy was then published in the journal, which international law commentators gobbled right up. So, the international community hounded Secretary General Tant for apparently disregarding international law when caving in to Egyptian demands to withdraw UNEF, and for not at least delaying the withdrawal. However, Mr. Tant really does seem to have the law and the hard facts on his side. As we just said, the strongest legal argument was that Egypt could not unilaterally terminate UNEF's right to operate. But Hammarskjöld's aid memoir stating that Egypt couldn't do that was a private document, never submitted for review to any other UN organs. It had no official standing whatever in the United Nations system or international law at large. It was essentially just a written opinion, whatever powerful and esteemed position the author may have occupied. This written opinion, I should add, seems to blatantly contradict the good faith agreement between Hammarskjöld and Egypt, emphasizing that consent of those concerned was fundamental to the UNEF, whatever it said about it remaining until the task was complete. Keeping UNEF in Egypt after they withdrew consent would essentially have made it a United Nations occupation force, and one which did not have the Security Council's authorization. That would almost certainly violate international law and ruin the UN's legitimacy and reputation. Besides, at least two nations contributing to the force were going to withdraw the moment Egypt withdrew consent. So the force was unraveling one way or another. Egypt was also dead serious about UNEF withdrawing as soon as possible, going so far as to say exactly how much time they will allow for Yugoslavian units to pull out. They also aired their suspicions about Canadian units, given Canada shares a sovereign with the United Kingdom. Furthermore, and apologies for essentially repeating myself, Egypt had already amassed large numbers of troops on the border with Israel, even with the UNEF present, making it unlikely that any delay in withdrawing UNEF would have made a difference in hostilities resuming between Israel and the Arab states. Keeping it in place does not look like it would have been helpful in any way really, and it was outright dangerous for UNEF to stay put without Egyptian consent. This fact cannot be overstressed. Just to stress it a little more, in fact, here are two incidents highlighting the dangers of remaining deployed. On May 18th, the same day Egypt officially requested the forces withdrawal, at 12.10 GMT, 7.10 for those at UN headquarters, Egyptian officers showed up at the Yugoslav camp in Sharm el-Sheikh, saying they had come to take over the camp and the nearby observation post at Ras Nasrani, demanding a response within 15 minutes. Then, at 14.30 GMT, or 11.30 for UN headquarters, the Yugoslav detachments at two other camps reported two Egyptian artillery shells bursting between the camps. They were apparently ranging shells, so they could have been part of an unrelated exercise, but... Come on, they were almost certainly meant to intimidate. So this is 
just half an hour before Utant receives the official request to withdraw UNEF as soon as possible. Even earlier than all of this, on May 18th, a plane carrying General Rikie, who, just to remind you, was force commander at this point, was intercepted by two Israeli aircraft. These tried to make Rikie's plane land in Israel, even going so far as to fire several warning shots to this end. However, the pilot refused to comply in accordance with Rikie's orders. So, yeah, between Egypt and Israel both dialing up hostility, UNEF's position became a pretty good position for decimation or outright annihilation by one or both sides as they lurched towards open conflict. The UNEF's withdrawal was complete by June 17, 1967. Remember how I said the Six-Day War started even before UNEF finished withdrawing? Well, here's the real interesting thing. Not only did the war start before they finished withdrawing, the whole war started and ended before UNEF finished withdrawing. It lasted from June 5th to June 10th. A whole new Arab-Israeli war had broken out and ceased again in the time it took for UNEF to withdraw completely. Tragically, caught between two warring parties, UNEF suffered pointless, senseless casualties. Just to mark the most serious incident, Israeli artillery shells hit a camp with UNEF personnel concentrated in it, killing one Brazilian and 14 Indian peacekeepers. One other Brazilian and 16 other Indian peacekeepers, meanwhile, were also wounded in this incident. There was no retaliation. What good would it have done? And so ended the first United Nations Emergency Force. Next time, we will take a look back at everything that has happened here, what it all meant for the United Nations as an institution, and what it meant for peacekeeping as an instrument of global politics, and what lessons were taken from it. Thank you for listening. I hope you join me next time on United for Peace as we take a retrospective look at the first United Nations Emergency Force. <laughs>